These are the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. <clears throat> I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We are the exiled. We are hated. Some of us are persecuted. We are the despised. Now, how much peace does that bring you? <laughs> it's strange, right? It's strange that Jesus said, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. Well, that's not exactly what he said, is it? He said, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. And that is not a small point to miss. Peace is priceless. I, I'm convinced that peace is what we seek in nearly all of our actions. I mean, how many of you are stressed? I had a very stressful week. How many of you are, are anxious this morning? You just feel that you're sitting on pins and needles. How many of you are depressed? And yes, it is okay for Christians to be depressed. What would you give to have peace? It's priceless. You, you cannot, you would give whatever you had to feel at rest in your heart, in your mind and soul. Uh, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of fame, love, the things that we pursue I think we pursue them because they bring us ultimately peace, but not the kind of peace that lasts and certainly not the kind of peace that reaches into the soul. We all crave peace and in Jesus Christ, we can have peace even if we are exiled and we are exiled. Now, not many of us are in a literal exile Though I think we do know what it's like to feel like an outsider. It's been a long time since I have worked regularly with people that aren't also followers of Jesus Christ. As a pastor and some of the work that I do uh, in a parachurch ministry on a national basis, the people that I work with most often are all believers. But I do remember in college and in high school and some of the other jobs that I held where I felt like, at the very least, I was the only person that was a follower of Jesus Christ. I remember the awkwardness of not thinking that some of the same jokes were funny. I felt intimidated and, and felt the pressure to use certain language to fit in with the peers. I remember what it's like sitting at a lunch table, wanting to pray, but feeling as if every person is watching me and judging me and thinking, look at that crazy person that talks to himself before he eats. I remember that feeling. And some of you, that's where you are right now. That's what you feel like at your job. That's what you feel like in the classroom. That's what you feel like at the university. You feel 
like a stranger, a foreigner, that you don't even speak the same language as the people that are around you. But even if we are not in a literal exile, literally, we've been kicked out. Our ideas and our beliefs are in exile. Christianity and our understanding of morality, that which we think you should do and that which we think you should not do, has been annexed by our society. America is content to let us have our silly beliefs as long as they don't contaminate society. But we have good beliefs. We have right beliefs. We don't merely have religious beliefs. We have beliefs that we think are true with a capital T. And so we cannot just stay locked in a monastery. We are not to hide when banished. Commune living is not for the true follower of Jesus Christ. And so even in exile, as the book of 1 Peter says, we are to prepare our minds for action, setting our hope fully on the grace that is to come to us. And we are to love one another from a pure heart. And loving this world means to intervene when it is for their good. Before us, I think we have a unique opportunity to seek the good of others and to love our neighbors. This year, this past year, over one million unborn babies were aborted. And since 1973 in Roe v. Wade, there have been approximately 56 million, nearly 57 million abortions. Now, by comparison, we are rightfully so horrified that 11 million were killed during the Holocaust. Abortion is the hidden Holocaust in our own country. I know many of you are angry about this right now. The recent videos released the undercover videos portraying some of the practices of Planned Parenthood, you, you've watched these. And for the very first time, you've seen what abortion is. And it's just made you angry. And it's right to be angry. It is a good anger. And this morning's sermon is to help us rightfully act in the midst of our anger to be angry and not sin, to let our anger drive us to move. The problem in the church right now regarding this issue is not apathy, I don't think. It is a lack of understanding of what can I actually do? And I think we have an opportunity to do something, and that is uh, the, the idea, that is the goal of this morning's sermon. If you have your Bibles, turn, as I mentioned earlier, to 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's read of that chapter, verses 13 through 18. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There are four things from this passage that will help us make a case for the unborn, to make a case for life. First, in our hearts, we are to regard the Lord as holy. I think the temptation to conform is very strong when you're in exile. When you've been cast out, when you are looked at funny, when you are not in the majority, or if you're at the mercy of those that have power, the temptation to conform to their wishes is very strong, either to gain acceptance or to gain pleasure or to profit from those that have, or simply the temptation to conform so as to avoid pain. And Peter wrote this epistle. It starts off to those in exile. That was a literal exile. Jews were literally kicked out of Rome. And when you are displaced by a group, the temptation to be accepted by them or to escape their fury is pretty heavy. But what does Peter start right from in encouraging them? Don't fear them. Regard the Lord as holy. And so church, it is right for me to ask you this morning, whom do you regard as the holy Lord and whom do you fear? Do you fear those that can kill your career, your reputation, or even your body? Or do you fear the one who can destroy both your soul and your body? This is the starting place for all of us that desire to make a case for life, to seek to do a good thing for our country. The starting point is to regard Jesus Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. The heart is the origin of our behavior. From it flows everything we do. The inner and the outer life are inseparable, which is a common lie given in our society. They say, keep your beliefs private. Just don't let them come out. But is that actually possible? Can you truly believe something and it never come out? No, your beliefs always come out in your actions. And so again, the starting place is for Christ to be your Lord. If Christ is not your Lord, you will conform to the wishes of those that offer you acceptance, <clears throat> pleasure, or the absence of pain. This isn't easy. I understand this. I know a lot of you actually don't. There's just a conflict. You want to tell people about Jesus, but you also don't want anybody to know that you're a follower of him. I know that conflict. I have felt that conflict. Even to this day, there are situations where I feel that conflict. And ultimately, it stems from who do I really trust and who do I really fear? And we live in a country that does not tolerate exclusive beliefs. Others in this world are content for us to have a private religion. They say, our God better not overstep his bounds, though, and have his people take their faith into public. And we've seen this thinking with abortion, haven't we? 
I'm sure you've seen the, the abortion bumper sticker that says, you don't like an abortion? Then don't have one. Our society is very confused about the nature of truth. They think everything is just a matter of opinion, like whether you think chocolate or vanilla is better. And as there is no objectively right answer to which flavor of ice cream is the best, they would say that all truth claims are like that. All claims of morality are in the category of better chocolate, better than vanilla. But that thinking leads to absurd conclusions. I mean, let's apply this to other situations. You don't like spousal abuse? Then don't beat your wife. It's okay to laugh because of how absurd it is. Yes, that was, a, that was an appropriate laugh right there. You don't like sex trafficking? Well, then don't go see a prostitute. You see how ridiculous this gets, don't you? Not everything is in the category of personal preference. There are some things that are wrong regardless of our taste or what we would prefer. And it is always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is morally wrong. What I just gave you is an argument. Now, I know when we hear the word argument, we think red-faced, bad words, mocking condescension. But an argument is simply a set of reasons to justify your position. Basically, an argument is, this is what I think, and this is why I am right. It, uh, and what I just gave you, by the way, abortion, or it is always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, therefore abortion is morally wrong, is what is called in logic a syllogism. I did not give you an opinion right there. You cannot just dismiss what I said by saying, well, that's just your personal belief. And how dare you impose your personal belief on somebody else? See, our culture is lost in this idea of relativism in which they think all truth claims are simply a matter of opinion. But I think from those silly examples, absurd examples that I threw out, we understand that not everything is in the category of personal preference, that there, is some, there are some things that are true with a capital T, meaning it's true for all people, regardless of whether you like it or it offends you. But as I said, our culture is so lost in relativistic thinking Terry and I each have spent uh, portions of our life teaching in high school and in middle school. And, and whereas my experience was in the private sector, Terry taught in public school. And, and during some of Terry's time, she was uh, the graduation coach, which if you're old enough to remember this, my wife was Michelle Pfeiffer uh, because she worked with uh, at-risk students and uh, at risk of not graduating. She's leaving because I just, she's embarrassed now. We have Baby number five, Allie, is driving us crazy right now. But she worked with students that were at risk of not graduating, and she worked in a school system that was very, very rough. The stories that Terry would come home with are, um, they just weigh heavy on your heart. And there was this one particular story, and uh, just because of how good my wife was at her job and uh, the nature of her position, students would just come to her office and just talk to her. And she had this one student come in, eighth grade student, 
come in telling Terry, she's like, I'm, I'm pregnant and I'm, I'm considering having an abortion. And uh, Terry was equipped to have the conversation. Terry was equipped to lay out a good reason um, for why not to, why that it would not be right for you to end that life. Everything from just explaining the stages of development, how early heart beats, the existence of fingerprints, how, when you can tell the gender, all of these things. And the, at the end of this, the student said, well, I, I see that, but I'm just not ready for this. It wouldn't be best for me right now. And that is how deeply the parasite of relativism has dug its talons into the minds of our children. That on one hand, they could even see that it is a distinct living human being, but also think that it's okay to end that life because it's not good for them. Relativism is destroying them. So how do we help those like that, that think that abortion is just up for grabs, like one's preference for ice cream. One of the ways to reach them is to give them a chance to view what's actually at stake in the abortion debate. How many of you saw a movie, The Passion of the Christ? Or how many of you saw maybe Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List? Those movies have graphic scenes in them, don't they? Disturbing images. I remember going in and watching The Passion of the Christ, and I remember halfway through just realizing that I'm gripped. My hands are just locked into the seat, and I've got white knuckles because of how intense it was. But churches took their congregation by the busloads to see this, right? Many educators recognize the value in showing Schindler's list because there are some things that are very hard to connect with until you've actually seen it. And when it comes to abortion, it is no different. There are millions of Americans that will not see this as a moral issue. They will only think of it as a preference issue until they see it. And in just a moment, we are going to show a very short video. It's only 90 seconds long, but it is very uh, disturbing. It is very, very powerful. Uh, now, it does not show an abortion procedure, but it does show the aftermath. And I'm going to give you instructions now, and, and when we're about to show it on how you cannot uh, avoid to, to look at it, you, you have every right not to watch this. It's only 90 seconds long. There is no narration. So if you just close your eyes, all you will hear is uh, some background music. Uh, and no one's going to judge you. No one's going to go, oh, my gosh, there's the one non-true believer because they're not watching this. No, it's for, for any number of reasons. If you don't feel comfortable uh, in watching this, uh, that's perfectly fine. And we're here today not to beat you up. We're not here to beat up on men and women that have participated in an abortion. And here's why. It's because we are firm believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? The gospel puts every one of us on equal footing before God's justice. The gospel is the story of a good God that created a good world and he placed us in it to do good, ultimately to have perfect fellowship with him. But rather than worship the creator, we rebelled and worshiped the creation. We set ourselves up 
as king. And effectively, every single one of us have said to God, you might have your way for things, but forget it, I am my own master. I will do that which I please. That is rebellion at its highest form. You have not set your heart and will against an earthly king who will have so many years. You have set your heart and will against the king of all kings, the one who has created all and sustains all. And God had every right to crush this rebellion. He would have been perfectly justified in his action to just wipe us out of existence. But because he is rich in mercy, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and take the wrath that was due us. Now, we don't like words like wrath and judgment. We get images of an emotional, emotionally unstable person that's just exploding with anger, can't control it. But that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about God. God is completely holy. He is morally perfect. And a perfect and righteous being has to punish sin. It cannot go away. So God's wrath and his judgment is his measured hatred of that which is bad, what we call sin. And God, because he is just, needed to punish the offenders. But instead, he sent his son, Jesus. And rather than pour out his wrath on the human race, he sent a substitute. And on the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God and he drank every last drop of it. And in so doing, he has made a way for us all to be reconciled to this great king because our crimes have been paid for. He has saved us from our sins. So when we show this clip, we are not trying to beat up on people who may have had an experience with abortion. We are showing it simply to convey truth. If you don't wanna watch, feel free to, to cover your eyes. It will be uh, 90 seconds long. That's quite hard to watch, isn't it? It does not, as many times as I've seen it, uh, it, it doesn't get any easier. I don't ever have to repress tears, especially the last one. That's the size of my daughter right now. And every stage is legal right now. And I know some of you may be thinking, is it really necessary 
to show that. And I think there's a historical example that shows us the power of these kinds of images. Uh, there's a, there was a man named Emmett Till, uh, and in 1955, he moved to Money, Mississippi. This was a, a young black man, and when he was there, he was bragging with his friends about uh, the white girlfriends that he had back in Chicago. And in 1955 in Money, Mississippi, you certainly did not date white women if you were a black young man, uh, much less even speak to them. So his friends were just giving it to him, like, whatever, you're just such a liar. And uh, he said, no, I promise you, I'm telling you the truth. He said, okay, prove it. So Emmett walked into a grocery store purchased a piece of gum from a 21-year-old white woman and very innocently but very flirtatiously said, thanks, babe, and walked on out. Something by our standards is completely harmless. Well, two nights later, two white men went to his home at gunpoint, took him, and savagely beat him ultimately finishing him off with a single shot to the head. And when he was discovered by the sheriff, he, the sheriff describes it as, I've never seen anything like this. The body was just mangled and beaten beyond recognition. It was a truly, truly horrific sight. And all he did, he took the body, put it in a, a wooden box, not even a coffin, nailed it, shipped it back to Chicago to his mother and simply put the note on this, do not open it. Well, she did, she opened it, and it was just horrific. And the, and the media was asking her, what, what are you going to do? And she said, I'm gonna have a funeral, and it's gonna be an open casket. And people were like, There's no, you cannot do this. That is not decent, it is right. You cannot do that. And her words were, I want the entire world to see what they did to my little boy. So sure enough, she had the funeral, open casket. There was a picture of it, and it was published, nationally published in Jet Magazine. And that image helped launch the civil rights movement. And we know this because three months later, I'm sure you know the name Rosa Parks. She was asked to move to the back of the bus, and she refused. And she was asked, what gave you the strength to do that? Why didn't you do that? And in her memoir, she says, I couldn't get the image of that boy out of my mind. And I think the same is true with the images of abortion. They are images that you cannot get out of your mind once you have seen them. And I think that our country will be content to let those babies be slaughtered as they are comfortable viewing them as matter and not the babies that they are. And seeing it helps. So we are not in the business of beating people up, but we have to lovingly and truthfully open the casket on abortion. And at the same time as we open the casket on abortion, we open the, we open the truth of God's word that sinners can be forgiven. And I think as we are seeking to end a social evil, it also creates pathways for evangelism because when sin is seen in a concrete manner, the forgiveness of God is ever more enticing. 
And so let us, church, be committed to speaking this truth in love with grace and offering the hope that is in the gospel. Amen? There's a second point from this passage to help us uh, be able to make a case for life, and, and it is in verse 15. Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ, Lord is holy. And then he continues, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Simply, we need to be able to defend or make a case for our beliefs, and on this issue in particular. You may have seen recently, Mark Rubio was on CNN, interviewed by Chris Cuomo, and Cuomo kept pressing him, saying, you know, you're about to be, you're running for president. As president, how can you enforce your religious beliefs on other people? Cuomo's come out, he's very much pro-life. I mean, Cuomo, excuse me, Rubio is very much pro-life. And Cuomo was pressing him, presidents, you can't, as a president, you can't just enforce your religious beliefs on other people. But our position is not just a religious one. That, that's the great confusion here. We're making a truth claim with a capital T, a claim that Christianity also makes, but that's just the reason why you should be a Christian. It's filled with truthful things. It's not just that it's a religious belief, it is a true belief. And that is why it is a part of Christianity. So how do you make a case though with people that, that do not share your beliefs? Well, first, and if you're taking notes, this is, this is an easy outline. First, clarify the issue. Most abortion debates, probably the ones that you get sucked into, don't focus on the right question. And the right question is, what is the unborn? That is really the only relevant question that matters in this discussion. But I want you to think about the last debate you had. It probably was about anything other than that. It was about rights of women. It was about birth defects. It was about rape. It was about economic disadvantage. It was about any number of things other than what is the unborn. Most of the discussions that exist on abortion are secondary discussions, assuming the most important one has already been answered. What is the unborn? Because our position is that elective abortion unjustly takes the life of a defenseless human being. This really simplifies the controversy by focusing on the most important question. So as you find yourself getting sucked into them, lovingly and graciously clarify the issue by directing it to the, what is the unborn. Second, defend your pro-life position with science and philosophy. And that sounds interesting coming from a pulpit, correct? Now we do, and I'll get to this in a second. Well, I might as well do it here. We do have reasons grounded in scripture for our position. Ultimately, our understanding of human value comes because we are made in the image of God, that we are a special and prized portion of his creation. And as an intentional act of creativity, of creation, each one of us, regardless of anything that we have or possess, any character trait, any skin color, we all share the same value and the same dignity. And that is rooted in our, as, as we are image bearers of God. But this position that we hold, our pro-life position for the, un, for the unborn, making case for the unborn, is also undergirded by science and philosophy. And here's what I mean. Scientifically, 
We know that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. The science of embryology informs us of that, not merely our religion. So you didn't evolve from an embryo. You once were an embryo. And that is what science shows us. Philosophically, we can say that embryos are less developed than newborns, but this difference is not morally significant in the way that abortion advocates need it to be. The difference, in other words, is that you cannot, there's nothing that justifies killing you then, but not killing you now. For example, self-awareness is also as often touted by abortion advocates as a reason why abortion should remain legal. Well, they're not even aware of themselves. They have no, no consciousness. But notice how that is an arbitrary assertion. That is not actually an argument. To simply say abortion should remain legal because the fetus is not aware of itself, that's just an assertion. It's not actually a reason. And here's how you can help people see something in just like this. just by asking a question. Why does having the immediate capacity of self-awareness give you the right to life? If I, ever, if I were to ever lose that capacity, does that mean you can kill me? If that's the case, don't go to sleep. If you're ever in a coma... We can go kill you. So you'll say, and I've heard people say this to me, well, okay, okay, it's not the same thing because those people, people that go to sleep, uh, people that are in a coma, they had self-awareness at one point. See, that, that's the difference. But how, what, why does, that, why does that matter? So according to that thinking, if before I receive an inheritance, you can steal it? If, or let's put it more in a, a similar fashion. If before I have the ability to speak, you can, that means you can cut my tongue out. If I can't talk yet, you have the right to cut my tongue out. Or if I cannot walk yet, is it okay to break their legs? Just because you haven't had the capacity for something yet, what sense does it make as justification for removing it or killing it, ending it? It does not make any sense. I've heard another good illustration back in the days of, of Polaroid cameras. I'm sure even if you've not had one, you know what they are, you know, before the digital age and you could either send off your film to have it developed in like six weeks or whatever. Or you had a little Polaroid camera, which you take the picture. If I had one, it'd be perfect, right? Slowly comes out and you have this thing, nothing on it yet, you gotta fan it. Well, let's imagine that you are traveling and you find an exotic animal one that's really hard to photograph, some kind of spotted leopard or something. You take that picture, comes out and it's developing. But before, it's just some brown smudges. And somebody grabs it right out of your hand, rips it up and throws it to the ground. And you're, you're obviously angry. And the response, what? Just a brown smudge. You understand how ridiculous it is. If you would have just left it alone, everything, the picture was already there. You just couldn't see it yet. 
There is no morally significant difference between the embryo you once were and the person you are today. There's an acronym that can help you remember this. And we have resources for you to take home, put on your refrigerator to help you with this. But there's an acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. Because those are the four categories of things that abortion advocates will say. These are the, the, the differences. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And it's true that fetus and embryos, it's smaller than us. But how is that a justification for killing something? Newborns are obviously smaller than toddlers. Is there any justification there? And furthermore, do we really think that value comes from size alone? Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean men are more valuable than women? Obviously not. Level of development, sure. A newborn baby is more developed than an embryo or a fetus. But again, so are toddlers. Toddlers are more developed than newborns. A 21-year-old woman has a working reproductive system. She is more developed than my daughter, Caden. Why is level of development a right to kill you then, but not kill you now? Environment, where they are located, is used as a justification. But how does where you are result in an increase of value? It's ridiculous to think that if I were to walk out of this building, I would become more valuable as a person. It's equally ridiculous to think that traveling down a birth canal suddenly makes you a valuable person worthy of human life. And lastly, degree of dependency is touted. And they would say things like, well, that, that, eight, that embryo, that fetus, it cannot support its own life. Well, of course, with that kind of thinking, any of you that are on insulin right now or perhaps are going through dialysis or are in an a coma, you don't have the right to life either. How is degree of dependency relevant? And you, so you can see that philosophically, there is no morally significant difference that would justify killing you then as opposed to killing you now. The third thing that we are to do is to use appropriate tactics. 1 Peter 3.15 goes on to say about making a defense but then it says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may put to shame. We must act with sensitivity to the gospel. This is a classic case of ends don't justify the means. That just because we're out to do a good doesn't mean that we don't need to think about the strategy and the tactics that we employ. And especially in dialogue, in conversation, always extend respect and gentleness. And there are practical things you can do in that. One is simply just to grow in knowledge. And I'll come back to this in a second. The more equipped you are, the less frustrated you become, the slower you are to anger. Most of the anger and conversation simply stem from your inability to explain what you mean. And I know you've been there. You've been the, what? You just don't know how to get out what you're thinking and it just makes you angry. It's frustrating. They boil over. So one, just growing in knowledge helps you to stay calm, which allows you to be respectful and gentle. But remember also that we're just not out to end a social evil. We also don't want to create unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. And you being a loud-mouthed, arrogant jerk doesn't do any good for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it would be better that they don't change their mind on the evil of abortion, but are enticed by the gospel. So be very careful in the tactics that you use. You are always to be gentle. You are always to be respectful. Fourthly, we make the case by being willing to suffer for good with ultimately the gospel in view. Read with me 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And I want you just to think this morning, ask yourself the question, are you willing to suffer for this good? There's some things about this. The idea of security is a false idea. That regardless of your efforts, you might be the, the most wise person. You might be the most careful, frugal person with your money. You might be very careful in how you protect your children. You may have every corner in your house covered with foam. But there is no way to completely guarantee that harm will not come to you. And many Christians live their life fearful of anything bad coming their way. So they're not gonna risk. But whether you're risking for good or not, you are not excused. You are not uh, to be forgotten in the problem of pain. It comes pretty indiscriminately. And you may suffer regardless. And it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. And when dealing with abortion, I think there are two groups of people that need to remind themselves of the gospel here. Those that are not willing to suffer, suffer this good because they need healing from a past abortion. And if that is you here this morning, whether you had one, encouraged one, paid for one, know that there is no condemnation here. There is no condemnation for those that belong to Jesus Christ because we all equally have rebelled against him and we all are in equal, equal need of forgiveness and we all equally celebrate the mercy that he has given to us. And so if that is you today, just come to Jesus and be healed. Post-abortion men and women they do not need an excuse. They need an exchange. Christ's righteousness for their sinfulness, which is what we all need, amen? There is a second group that is not willing to suffer for this good, and it is simply because they lack the courage. And to you, we ask you to look to our Savior, who he himself suffered, suffered for righteousness' sake, that we might be reconciled to God. And remember, believers, that in Christ, we have an inheritance that is awaiting us. We can have peace regardless of our circumstances. And so because of what we uniquely have belonging to Christ, let us be fearless. Let us be courageous. Let us be willing to lay down our lives for good. And if we suffer, so be it. We might suffer anyway. So where do we go from here? I wanna end this morning with four practical things 
can write these down. First is to simply grow in knowledge. We have a lot of resources for you to do so. Out there at our welcome desk, we have several books. We have my good friend Scott Klusendorf's book called The Case for Life, which is probably the best book I have ever read on this issue. It's not written over anybody's head, but it includes a lot of science and a lot of philosophy that you will be able to use in a gracious and humble manner with your friends. And we got it for a steal. We got it for $6 a book. That's cheaper than Scott can even get his own book. He wanted me to buy some for him so he could get it at that discount, but we said, no, the publisher won't let you do that. Sorry, Scott. So go take advantage of this. We have a limited number of copies. Uh, it is written with you in mind, but simply go and read that book. If, if you don't have any money and you don't have any cash on you, we even have a free book out there by Randy Alcorn. Very good. Go ahead and take that. And you might be thinking, that's great, but I'll never read a book ever. I've never read one from start to finish. This certainly isn't going to be the first one. Well, Good news for you. We have a, a eight and a half by 11 front and back. It's titled How to Make the Case for Life in Five Minutes or Less. <laughs> yeah, I saw somebody go, that's mine right there. I'm all over that. Take it, put it on your refrigerator, start memorizing it. It's real easy, real simple. It's your elevator speech on how to make a case for life using science and philosophy, being able to clarify the issue. We are more than glad to help you with that. Second, register to vote. And you went, uh-oh, um, this church just got done, got political. I know there's that tension, right, that politics and Christianity don't have anything to do with each other. Well, you have drunk from the poisonous well in our society. Just that idea of don't let your private beliefs come out in public is nonsense. And it's be being driven by those whom, whose beliefs are in politics. It's just ridiculous, right? Brief comment on that, by the way. This is a whole sermon in itself that I'm just dying to preach one day. The New Testament is actually very political. Both Peter and Paul had political minds. They were sensitive to the culture. They were sensitive to Rome. They had strategy because of it that affected evangelism and to help Christianity actually exist because Rome had the power just to squash them. So with that political understanding in mind, Paul gave instructions to churches accordingly. Also, we see in Acts chapter 21 and 22, Paul leveraging the law to gain a platform to speak and to keep him from getting beaten. He knew the law and he leveraged the law. And Christians, we are to do the exact same thing. Know the law, leverage the law. One, so we have an audience and a platform. And second, leverage the law to stop evil whenever we can. That tension does not need to, ex uh, it, that tension needs to exist held in proper balance though. Because we aren't only about creating a good society. We are about things of greater importance. But Christians, we are morally responsible to seek the good of our neighbors. And in our land, that involves political channels. Enough about that. Third thing, support your local pregnancy resource center. Our good friends Lucy and Randy are here this morning and they have a table back there with more than enough information on how you can get involved. Support them with your time, support them with your money, support them with your mouth. Just make sure that other people know that this resource is available. It's a very simple and practical way for you to get involved in something that's not gonna steal all of your time. Because I know part of this is you're thinking, I don't have enough time to give to this. Go talk to them, go talk to Lucy, find out how you can get involved. And the fourth thing, and this is the last 
thing for this morning is we are to celebrate stories of redemption and restoration. We can have the tendency to be very negative, focusing only on sin and problems, but that's not the whole gospel story, is it? The story is of creation, of fall, but redemption in Jesus Christ and the restoration that comes to those that belong to his family. And to conclude this morning, we're gonna hear a story that is a redemptive story and it is also one of restoration. Please welcome my good friend, uh, Kevin Tanner, as he shares with us briefly. Hope, redemption, grace, healing, forgiveness. The truth that sets you free. The truth that speaks through the darkness that brings light. It is always there, but rarely easy to see. At 16, with a swelling belly and hormones to go with it, she could not see it. She did not see the freedom. She did not see the hope. and She did not, definitely did not see the redemption, the love, the forgiveness. She saw a problem. She needed a solution, and she would turn to the loudest voice out there, a voice that spoke understanding, a voice that spoke without judgment, a voice that spoke acceptance, and a voice that offered her a solution, a quick, fast, walk-away solution. She did not walk into Planned Parenthood because she wanted to kill a life. A baby, a little boy, a toddler, a dream catcher, a football player, a Star Wars hero. She had a problem, and they had an answer. She walked in because they were the loudest voice. They were the loudest voice. She sat in that room and prepared herself to take care of the problem so that she could continue being a kid, so that she could continue trying to put her broken life back together. She was not thinking like a murderer. No, she was thinking from a mind, from a fearful, alone, scared, young little girl. But God was there. God is always there. $500 for an ultrasound? You see, it was needed before they could take care of the problem. She didn't have that type of money to take care of that problem. And praise the Lord that she didn't have $500. She left even more desperate, scared, frustrated, and alone. She went to her mom, who embraced, loved, and encouraged her. Her mom knew of a place that would do the ultrasound for free with only one small catch. She had to talk to somebody about the details. Just talk. So she was told what really goes on in an abortion. And she was told the risks it could cause her future pregnancies, the risks that it placed on her body. The ultrasound tech was gentle and kind, and she thought she was only eight weeks along, but when that black and white screen started to flicker, as the tech worked to get a good view, she saw a tiny hand reach out from the screen as if to say, please. It wasn't an eight-week problem. It was a 12-week baby. Perfection. And all of a sudden, it was no longer a problem. It was a life. And she chose in that moment, moment to see it as a life. She chose life. She chose life because someone gave her a moment without judgment. Someone gave her a moment to be educated without guilt and condemnation. 
and someone gave her a true solution to her problem. That before that day, she only knew of one answer. And on August 14th, 2009, two worlds collided for one special little boy, dream catcher, football player, Star Wars hero, my sweet boy, Jaden. Hope, love, redemption, forgiveness. It was found, and it's still being found. His story is not done, and our story is not done. Without the prayers and action of her mother, and without the love and sacrifice of that pregnancy center, my other boys, Tyler, Carson, and Asa, they wouldn't have this big brother to look up for. Church, let's be the louder voice here. Let's be a voice that's not coded in condemnation and judgment, but a voice offering love, hope, restoration, and redemption. Amen. That's it. Let us be the louder voice. Not screaming, just heard. Let us be gentle. Let us show them the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Let them find true peace. Church, let us be that louder voice. Amen. Today might be the day that some of you are adopted, not into an earthly family, but into a heavenly family. You might have heard the word of God this morning and realized that you are in need of forgiveness of your sins. And if that is you, we ask you simply to call on the name of Jesus this morning. And all that means is to say, God, I recognize that before you, I am accountable, that I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. And we know that all who do that, all who call upon the name of the Lord are saved because he is rich in mercy and he gives it freely and indiscriminately. We are all in need need of it. And if that is you today, please ask for it. And for the rest of us, church, let us commit to growing in knowledge to risk any suffering that comes along with doing this good. Collectively, let us do this together. Let us be creative. Let us be strategic. Let us do this as one. And let us see a great good come to all those that are around us. Amen. We're gonna end with a time of singing. If you need to pray, if you wanna come to the altar, if you need to speak with me, if you need to be counseled, any of that, we want you to respond. Know that your response will be met with love and direction. Amen. Amen.